This is Johnny Silva. I'm the pastor at Dilly First United Methodist Church, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you. I hope it builds your faith, and I hope it gives you perspective to see God moving in your life. Enjoy the message. Uh, I had my fourth observation by the alternative certification program that I'm in. Um, and so we did something I think is pretty cool. So it's not just me teaching a lesson and then um, the students kind of doing some stuff, whatever. But it was actually a lab. And I like those labs because I kind of set everything up and then they do stuff and they're engaged, the students do. And so it's pretty good. Now I have one more observation before the end of the year from the alternate certification program but then also I have one more for the t-test which is the um, administration of the school that I that I'm at um, they're coming and observing me one more time for that so the students um, conducted a lab in which they found and for those chemistry people out there I know I have at least one chemistry uh, former chemistry teacher out there but the students conducted a lab in which they found the percent composition of water in copper sulfate pentahydrate, which everybody knows how to do that, right? That's pretty simple. But I was very proud of my students uh, because what they did was, I mean, they would have done this anyway because that's just who they are. They're, they're good students. And I chose this particular class on purpose. But the they knew that somebody was there kind of but they were paying attention to what they were supposed to be doing so it was like they almost forgot but they were staying on task and they were working well with one another which is very good and this is in a class of 32 so i have no empty seats everybody was at a, a station i had 10 stations um, and they were all doing what they were supposed to do and um, it was really great because we only have 48 minutes in a class and for labs you have to really be on it because labs do take a little bit longer. So it was great that they were staying on, uh, on task and focused and they were able to complete the lab and also get into the post-lab calculations, which was tremendous. Couldn't have asked for anything better. Now in the post-observation conference that I had right after the class, so this was fourth period, right after that, so during my lunchtime, the field supervisor immediately um, was talking about how he was impressed, he continues to be impressed with the culture the, that we have in that class. And he's also said, you can tell that you enjoy what you're doing and it's contagious because the students feel that as well. So it's really great, like I, that's kind of an intangible thing. I was like, oh, well that's great, awesome. So it went well, so I was pleased with that, but, but also he kind of got at something here and he was saying basically that I know that you're teaching them more than just high school chemistry. And I was glad to hear that because he could see what I was doing and what I was bringing to this and that I'm interested in not only them being successful, these students being successful in my chemistry class, but in life. And I've said that to them and I think they know that. I've said it over and over again. And so as a leader among leaders, I would not ask them to do something that I wasn't willing to do myself and I was going to do my best to be a great example for them and to lead by example. And now you know as well as I do that teaching and parenting for that matter can be considered a labor of love. 
As I said last week, sometimes students and children make it easy. They make it easy on us. And there are other times that they make it really, really difficult. And so regardless, we keep on emptying ourselves nonetheless. And another one of my jobs that I've had in my past, and this was right before seminary and kind of in between graduating from college and then right before seminary, I was a server at an Italian restaurant. And so it was close to where I lived. And, and, and really and truly, I believe that everybody can benefit from being in the service industry in some shape or form. So being a server or a waiter, being in customer service, just dealing with people in, on a regular basis and serving them. I think that is something that we can all benefit from. And so if it ever comes to the time and my son Jackson has expressed his interest in owning his own restaurant, sometime I was like okay well if you want to do that there's some steps to do that so whenever you are old enough you can serve in in that industry and then you can see is this something I really want to do but I think it's also good for him kind of overall to be in service and so just like with anything else it was not like 100% awesome all the time there are some times where it was pretty easy and that things were great. Uh, but then, of course, there were other times that it was not so great. One time in particular when I was serving, uh, we closed, and this was on a Sunday, so we closed at, at 10 o'clock. And there was a couple that came in, and they're an older couple. And I'll say why in just a little bit. But they came in at 9.55. We closed at 10. And if you know anything about that, I mean, everybody, a lot of people had already been sent home and that sort of stuff because everybody's cleaning up. Everybody's ready to close shop, right? But they come in at 9.55 and I'm one of the section leaders. So it was my turn. So I had to, to serve them. So, okay, no big deal. I approached it just like anything else. They were, um, I was serving them and we were going to do this together. It's going to be great. And, and I'll send them on their way. Um, but it didn't turn out that way. So, uh, again, I have had time after time after time, especially with that particular um, job, where you get lessons in humility, being humble. So I served. I, I said, okay, well, you know, what would you like? So I'm taking orders from them. Uh, what would you like to eat? And uh, the man gave his his order and then the woman and I know what she ordered because because of this and so I said they're an older couple just so that you know that they were not kids right they weren't like teenagers or anything like that so they had no business acting like this but they did so the the woman says I want the lunch portion lasagna now remember it's 9:55 at night Lunch had ended several hours ago, and so there is a lunch portion lasagna, and then there's the regular portion, like the dinner portion. So I said, well, ma'am, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna be able to, um, to accommodate that, but what you can do, given her another suggestion, you can order the, the lasagna, and I can you know, package half of it so you can take it home. And um, I'll use this as my prop here. So she says, Mm, no, that's what I want. She hands it to me and then shoes me away. I was like, whoa, okay. 
So I went back um, to kind of put in the order and all that sort of stuff. And then I had everybody kind of like eyes on me, all the servers and even the manager and everything. They're like, what are you going to do? So I was like, well, I have a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm going to try to get her out of here the fastest way possible. And to do that, if you're okay with that, um, just give her the lunch portion of lasagna and send her on her way. And so that's what happened. But they were surprised at why I was doing that. And, you know, was I going to treat them differently or anything like that? I was like, no, the goal is for me to get them out. So what's the best way to do that? Do what they ask and then let them head out the doors and lock it immediately right behind them so they can't come back in. But it was a huge lesson in humility for me. And then it was also a lesson to what other people were, were observing about me. Because they would not have handled it that way. Even my manager at that time, he was like, he was saying some choice words in, in Spanish. And uh, I was like, well, I, you know, I can't say that here in, in church or anything. But it was, it was something like um, to the effect that um, he did not think very highly of this uh, particular person. And I was like, but what good is it going to do for me to get upset about it? It's not. It's not going to do any good for me. And it's not going to help me get them out any faster. So why not just do the best I can, give the best service I can, because I was always going to do that anyway, and then send them on their way. Now, again, that is not the easiest thing to do. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, sometimes it's really hard to serve people. Now, this was one of those situations where I was serving, and based on how I did, it was their judgment of me, they would give me a particular you know, percent gratuity and whatnot. But it's so hard sometimes to serve. Sometimes people make it easy. Other times people make it very difficult. So what do we do? What do we do in those times? And I mean, I guess maybe what I'm trying to get at is the why behind serving. I mean, we know we're supposed to do that. But if you think about it, in situations like the one I just described and other bad experiences that we've had trying to serve other people. The thing is, you, you can get this very detailed and vivid picture as to why not to serve. It's all too easy to say this. This is why I don't serve. Right. Because of this. And everybody has a story like that. Everybody has a story similar to that. But but believe me, I get it. I do. And there are so many reasons and so many excuses, and, but they're all good as to why we choose not to serve. So how then can we sift past all of those bad experiences, all those bad tastes in our mouth as to why not to serve and find the one reason why to serve? Now, what drives us? What's that why? It's not just because the Bible says to do it. It has to be more than that. So in our continued efforts to try to create this culture of love, we have to know that serving others is an essential part of that. But how are we supposed to do that exactly? In this world that we live in with, with people that don't treat us the way that we want to be treated and all that sort of stuff, and we're trying to serve, we're trying to be good people, and they do not make it easy for us, how do we do that? 
How do we sift through all of that and find that one reason why? More than just we know we're supposed to. So again, we are talking about this culture of love and we're trying to build something better, not only for the world that we live in now, but for those that come after us. We want better for the people that we love. And so how do we do that? So you know that Jesus was a teacher. He was a prophet. He was many things, but he was a teacher. And like most teachers, in order to keep their sanity, sometimes we make up funny nicknames for our students. I mean, I don't know if you do this. This is what I do. But Jesus did this too. And so we have a lot of characters that we come across, and Jesus had his fair share. And so he came up with some interesting names for his disciples. And I think it was for his entertainment as much as anybody else's. But we have James and John. They were the sons of Zebedee. They were also called the sons of thunder. And I'll tell you why, if you don't know why they were called this. That was the nickname given to them. But whenever they came to believe that Jesus was actually God, the Son, in human form, on one occasion they even asked if they could call down thunder and lightning from heaven to strike down the people that they didn't like. Okay, so that's not how it goes. But they also add to that the fact that they were... Um, they kind of jumped into things without thinking. They didn't have that filter a lot of times. They met a mess, made a mess of things. And so from that point on, Jesus used that, and he nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. So now, let's, let's see how this amazing teacher, the best teacher in the history of teachers, let's see how Jesus uses these two as an example and as a teaching moment for the disciples and for us. So this begins in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's dangerous, but okay. And he says to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at the right hand and one at the left hand in your glory. Now, first of all, uh, we'll stop there for now, but I know that Jesus is not your average teacher, but he is a teacher. And I'm sure that he knew what he was doing, but it's kind of like giving a blank check to a child. Whenever he said, yeah, I'll do what you said. But basically he says, um, he doesn't say yes, but he says, well, what are you asking me? And I'll see. And he kind of wants to see where this is going. So he's like, in his mind, I'm thinking, mm, this is going to be good because they always say some really interesting things. So let's see how this is going to affect all of us here. And so he continues on. And this is in verse 38. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. 
Hence what we were singing earlier, our first hymn, right? Are you able? Said the master. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So again, this is an example of them not really getting it. And let's kind of unpack what Jesus' response actually means. So Jesus asked whether James and John will be able to drink from the cup that he is and be baptized with the baptism with which he is being baptized. And then so to think about this in a story at the narrative level, this points to what is upcoming for Jesus, right? We know that Easter is coming and we know that there's the passion and we know that that's what this is referring to when Jesus will accept the cup that his father offers. Jesus, Jesus even asked God on that night that the cup would pass from him. But kind of resolving to it says, but thy will be done. And in this narrative, these disciples, these same disciples who protest their willingness to accept the fate of Jesus, they will actually be the ones to flee when he needs them the most, when he's arrested. And Jesus' prediction that you will drink of this cup may even be a hint to what will happen later on, their martyrdom for James and for John and for many of the disciples, but they will drink from the cup, as in they will experience what he has experienced. And I don't think that they really understood what they were asking. And in reference to the baptism and the cup, the community that Mark, the, the author of this particular gospel, is speaking to, they can also reflect on this and they can think about their own baptisms and also how and when they celebrate the Lord's Supper as an invitation to follow Jesus on the way to discipleship. So then it concludes with this in verses 41 through 45. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry. They began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their ruler, lords it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This last part, verse 45, is something we're familiar with. And we've heard it over and over and over again. And the disciples have heard it over and over again. But there's still something missing. <clears throat> so the other disciples, they act as though James and John said something blatantly obvious that you are not supposed to say. All the while, they probably were thinking the same thing in their heads. They just didn't ask first. And then whenever basically James and John are getting chastised for asking that question, 
They're like, see, why would you ever do anything like that? Knowing full well that they were asking the same question that they were thinking. But as a good teacher, Jesus used this as an example. And so Jesus contrasts, he, he compares and contrasts how the Gentile rulers, they lord it over those who they rule. And with the disciples, so that's how they know the culture to be. But with the disciples, it's something different. So this is a culture of fear, a culture of, um, I, I don't know, anti-love, if you will, anti-service. But they are different because they're creating a culture. They're building a culture of love. And that means putting other people first. That means loving even when it doesn't suit them. That means loving when it's hard. That's what a culture of love means. So he's juxtaposing these two things. This is how the Gentiles live. And you know this. This is how culture is. But this is how it could be. And this is what we're building together. And so we know that the Gentiles, those that are ruling, lord it over those who they rule. But not so with you. You should strive to be servants. Now in the Greek here, servants, it equates to basically what we think of as a server, as a, a kind of menial table server, that's, what is talk, well, that's what's being talked about here. And so next, he instructs that if they wish to be first, like James and John wish to be, they must be slaves. And that is, they must be at the beck and call of others. Just like with the server, you're taking orders. And you're serving those orders to the people who requested it. So this is one reason why I really do believe that everyone can benefit from working in some type of service. So you are literally taking orders, as I said, from other people and bringing them what they requested. And this, all of this is a basis for the last part where it says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's how it ends. And that's what everything is going towards. And Jesus knew all of this. And he let things play out. And he was going to use all of it so that they can, again, be upset at James and John, the other disciples. Because, oh man, I can't believe you said that. Even though they knew in their hearts they were asking the same thing. And he knew that. And he took that. And he said, you know these Gentiles. You know how they live. Oh yeah, them. And he pulls them in. You know that, but you also know that I'm calling you to do this. It's against culture. It doesn't make sense. But with Jesus, it makes sense. With Jesus, it makes a difference. And so this, whenever he says, a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, it basically, this saying is, is it's forced it's a force of comparing how Mark refers to Jesus in the first part of the gospel when he was talking about Jesus as a powerful, very powerful son of God. And then he's comparing that now to another type of power that is radically different and defined in terms of self-emptying. The Greek there is kenosis. And is that not what we do in service? Is that not what we do whenever we serve the ones that we love, our family, even when it's hard, even when it hurts? And behind this saying stands the figure of that suffering servant 
that is referred to in Isaiah 52 and 53 that Jesus is often compared to, whose death brings freedom for others. When it talks about ransom for many, this ransom is basically a technical term for the money paid to purchase freedom for a slave. Now, we don't know that in our culture, but you've probably seen movies about this and all that sort of stuff. But it's similar with, with kidnappings in movies, when, like in Taken, for instance, where a ransom is requested in exchange for the life and the safe return of a child. Jesus' life is given as such, as a ransom for many. Jesus' life is the ransom he paid and he bought all of us so that we can live a life and we can live a full life and a meaningful life because of what he did for us. Now in teaching, first I teach students a particular concept and then I model it for them and then I give a guided practice with them. We're doing this together. And then I, lastly, they learn by doing, right? They learn by doing it themselves. Now, this is where chemistry labs offer something I feel a little bit better than some of the other, um, from the other topics, the other subjects, because there is a lab, there is a chemistry lab. So hands-on, like I've taken this, what is very kind of theoretical, kind of just an abstract thought, Yes, I might have done some calculations here and there, but I can actually see this. I can use these manipulatives. I can see the flame. I can see this dehydrating. I can see that taking the water out of this, I can see it being put back in. I can see the physical change, the chemical change. I can see all of that, and it makes a little bit more sense, and I can know it at a deeper level, and it takes root, and it helps me remind be mindful of that whenever I come to a test. And this is exactly what Jesus does with his disciples and with us. He talks a lot and he teaches a lot about particular concepts. You have heard it said and I say to you, as we talked about last week, this is what the Gentiles do, this is what you do. This concept. And then he models it with his disciples and with everybody who he meets. It's not just on sometimes and off others. He's continuously doing this over and over and over again so that we might get it. And then there is this hands-on ministry. There is an example that we're doing this kind of as a guided practice together before he releases us, the disciples and us, to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That is the goal. The goal for Jesus taking this request of James and John and using it as a teaching moment and teaching them this is what the Gentiles do and this is what we do. All of this is so that whenever he's gone, they can take whatever they've learned with him and they can put it into practice. Their faith, everything that they've learned, they're going to put it into practice. Jesus is basically saying to you, to me, to all of us, okay, I know you understand service in theory. Now, it's time for you to show me 
in practice. So what does this actually look like for you, for me? What it looks like is this. It looks like Shrove Tuesday, serving pancake supper to anyone who comes in. Now, will there be some, some times where people are very gracious? Yes. Will there be some times where they're maybe not as gracious? And will it make it a little bit harder for you to serve? Yes. But that's part of it. And will there be some other times that you are in situations where you are called to serve? You are called to help other people? Yes. Is it always going to be easy? Absolutely not. But again, if we're looking at Jesus as our teacher, as the one who modeled things for us, not only taught us in theory, but showed us in practice so that we could then go out and do things in practice, now it's our turn. And this subject of Christianity, this subject of faith, it's just theory until it's put into practice. Jesus has told us many, many times that we are the hands and feet of this ministry. And it's true. Jesus has done everything that he could possibly do, even emptying himself out on the cross for you and for me. And for what? So that we can do the same, so that we can empty ourselves in service to others. That's the whole point of all of this. So that we have this faith and we talk about faith and we learn about faith and that's great. That's just the beginning. We have to actually put our faith into action. And so this, this course that we're learning about, this subject that we're learning about, Christianity and faith, it's just theory until we put it into practice. And the lab, the hands-on experience that we have the opportunity to, um, to engage in? Well, the lab is the world. And now it's up to us to really get our hands dirty, right? To really put our hands on this and so we can seep in, so we can understand it at such a rudimentary level that it becomes a part of who we are and it connects with who Jesus has shown us to be and who God created us to be. And this, my friends, is the time for us to put our faith into action. And it can start as soon as now. But don't let the opportunity slip from you. Don't let the opportunity pass you by. Take action now. See that the opportunities are before you. There are plenty. And it's up to you to be the hands and feet. It's up to me. It's up to all of us to build this kingdom here and now. To create this culture where it's no longer like the Gentiles. It's no longer that we're being led by the world. But we're being led by what Christ has done for us. So we're creating a culture of love. Yes, it is countercultural to what we know but it is so worth it because we're doing this, we're creating a community of faith, we're creating a culture of love here and now and for all who come after us. This is how we overcome adversity. 
This is our why for why we serve. It's not just because Jesus told us to. It's not even because Jesus showed us how to. But it's because it's our turn. It's our turn to serve. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And if we indeed are following that culture of love that Jesus began and that we are now in the process of creating, it's going to mean us getting our hands dirty. It's going to mean us putting our faith into action. Let us create this culture of love and let it start now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There's a couple of things I'd love for you to do. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And please share this message with friends and family to help us spread the gospel message. And thanks again for joining us on Dilly First United Methodist Church podcast. Blessings.